Friends gathered, more is caught than taught. Have you heard this? Let's talk a little bit of this when it comes to our family script. When it comes to the household you grew up in, there were many things that were probably caught by you. You learned how the family looked upon working, and how they looked upon keeping a house clean, and how they handled money. You even learned important things like sports allegiance. And so uh, when it comes to who to cheer for, uh, you learned. And you could either uh, be told a lecture of why you should cheer for either franchise, but more of what happens is they saw you. They saw you turn on the game and cheer for the players. And, and what they had is an experience of you taking them to the ball game, and you caught on. And now you're wearing the colors. Yes, more is caught than taught. I consider this when it comes to meeting with those who are about to get married, and we go over the family script. And we try to deduce, you know, what was the family approach to uh, handling money and cleaning? What was it when it comes to vacation and what you do there or on your free time and entertainment? Because that will influence how you guys operate. More is caught than taught. That's huge for me as a pastor. My, my goal is that there would be a ton of Christian families growing up in the next generation. Is anyone else's goal that way? But you know what I'm humbled by? I'm humbled by the church not being able to control that. Because the home trumps the church environment every time. What's happening in the home, whether mom or dad are talking about God, praying together, and in devotion, will trump the church every time because more is caught than taught. And you have seven days, I have one hour. So the family that we grow up in has a way of influencing us, yes? And some of you know that. But that's just one influence in our life. Another influence are the friends that we choose to hang out with. And there's a motivational speaker, Jim Ron, who said this, and maybe you've heard it before, that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And, and you see this every now and then if you have kids and they've been hanging out with some other kids. And now they're talking a certain way or doing a certain thing, and you're like, I, I don't remember um, teaching you that way. Uh, who you been hanging out with? What, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And this influences so much that in this book called The Compound Effect, this was a staggering statement. Um, according to research by so social psychologist Dr. David McClelland of Harvard, the people you habitually associate with determine as much as 95% of your success or failure in life. Wow. Now, I, I don't know how we got to that truth, but I think there's something there, uh, which, by the way, there's sign-ups for small groups in the lobby. But it's not just your family. It's not just your friends. Whether we choose to turn on the news or not, we are still affected by the world that we live in. It is so interesting to me that even for those who have written off media, the influence of the conversations going on in our world, in our culture, has a way of leaching into our lives, regardless. And so this world that we live in will affect our way, our mentality, what we're about. And so as we consider these three categories, I just want to do some self-reflection with you. I want to know who has the most influence on your way right now. 
Who is that person? Who is that thing, that source? Is it your family right now if you're a kid? Is it um, your friend group if, if that's who you're hanging out with? Uh, is it a spouse? Is it a coworker? Who is that that's influencing your way and in your head? And now let me follow up. And is it good? And is it good? This is why I love gathering in this place. Because in this place, we get the influence of the Lord Almighty, the God over all. And I want to welcome again, if you're new to Christianity, you're so welcome to be here. Uh, most of all, we want you to know the love of Jesus. But he has a way of chaining hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He has a way of changing our perspective. And when it comes to the word of God, I, I think of this statement that he told us. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Watch out for what everyone else is doing. Your family, your friends, what culture is talking about. Watch out that you don't conform to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In fact, in other places he said, you know what, if you love the world, the love of God is not in you. That, that's how polar opposite the ways of God are to the ways of our culture and this world. In another way, he said, you know, wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow the gate that leads to eternal life. Watch out for this world. And so it is for all of us to learn discernment. You know, this goes on in our Axis class. I don't know if we have anyone who's ever been in our Axis class. Uh, there is this exercise we do called, What's Wrong with That Pop Song? Now, by the way, parents, we keep it tame. Uh, like, I, I choose, like, the Bieber songs or the Taylor Swift songs. And, and we try to deduce, you know, what are they saying that isn't really what our God told us to be about, right? What's wrong with that pop song? And it, it's true for all of us that we need to continue to discern. And something that I find interesting about Jesus' way with his disciples is that he didn't just teach them. Like, he didn't just say, hey guys, come every week at the same time, and we're going to spend an hour together. No, what did Jesus do? He lived with them. For three years, they were his family. They, they ate together. They spent time together. Uh, he, they saw his way, and maybe Jesus knew, because more is caught than taught. I got to live with these guys for three years. And what he teaches today it is so antithetical to all the other influences. What he teaches today, I, I got to warn you, it's going to ruffle feathers. It's going to grind against what culture says. It's even going to grind against what you naturally think you should be about. That's how antithetical it is. Because what Jesus teaches us is to become lead servants. To model what it is to lay your life down for the sake of someone else. Now that's otherworldly. And so we're going to get into it um, as Jesus uh, predicts his death. And then we're also going to see the disciples' reaction to this. Something that we do in honor of the word of God is we just stand as it is read. So I'm going to invite you to just stand as we hear the word of God. Today from Matthew chapter 20. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And on the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be flogged, mocked, and crucified. But on the third day, he will rise. That's what he predicts, and now look what happens. 
Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and your left in your kingdom. Now these are positions of power. Give us the power. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will indeed drink my cup. And that's kind of an eerie statement we'll explore later. But to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who've been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The incredible words of God. Before you sit down, can you just say out loud or to your neighbor, the greatest is the least. The greatest is the least. Please be seated. So did you hear about the stimulus? The third stimulus, I know many probably got it, some did not. The third stimulus has created a conversation over, what do I do with the stimulus money? And so uh, I have found a lot of different memes on the topic. Um, the stimulus check is for, is for bowling balls. Some filled in mascara, new car. I saw this one I kind of appreciated as well. Don't do anything dumb, but also me, a goat, drinking McDonald's Coke. McDonald's Coke is the greatest, right? But when it comes to money, it's interesting how we choose to use it. And many times our default setting is, this money is for me. But I, I remember learning from a different pastor. His name is Andy Stanley. He had a winsome phrase. He said this, and something I believe, that not everything in your possession is for your consumption. I'm going to say it again just because I really like it. Not everything in your possession is for your consumption. That sometimes God wants to use you as the funnel for his activity. He wants to funnel it through you to help someone else. And that's what I considered last week as we went to an organization called All God's People. Now, this is an organization that helps the homeless downtown. And, and it's built by a lot of people who know that not everything in my possession is for my consumption. I can give this away, and it will help someone else. In fact, if you have the stimulus, and this represents to you some unplanned money, I just wanted to pause and challenge you with generosity. I wanted to pause and challenge you. Maybe you can use this as a funnel to help someone or help some good organization. Maybe the stimulus challenge is this, that I'm going to support gospel ministry and the sharing of Jesus' name. That's a good use of money. I'm going to use this money in order to help a family member who I know is down and out, to help someone around me in my circle who might need a little extra. But the reason I bring up the topic is because money represents power. Power is represented in many different ways. Money is power, influence is power, position is power. And I, I just wanted to ask, how are we to use power? 
You know, the world lets us know how we should use it. For yourself. If you have the right to buy it, you, you, you do you. Go buy it, that thing. It's just for you. Who cares about anything else? If you have the position to decide, the position to influence for yourself, then use that position to decide and influence for yourself. That is what the world teaches us all the time. And yet, what does Jesus model? So Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all power. He has all money. He has all authority. He has all right. And yet, what Jesus models is this, our first takeaway. Jesus, as lead servant, uses his power for us. And it's incredible. And it's so mind-boggling that the disciples really struggle getting it. You know, Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection three times in the New Testament. And all three times, they were like, uh, what? <laughs> and so Jesus says, he, he reminds them again, he says, You know what, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be flogged and mocked and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And just think of how low he is going. So first of all, to a bunch of Jews, he's saying, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. <laughs> And they're going to be the ones that crucify me. If you were here last week, we talked about the, the, the rift between Jews and Samaritans. Um, so he's in the hand of the Gentiles. He's not only going to be mocked, but also flogged and then die the worst death crucifixion. There isn't a lower degree you can go than what he's talking about. This is as low as it gets. And one of the great things I get to remind you of is this. This wasn't just for those disciples. This was for you. This was for you by name. For Jesus signs up to pay for your punishment in full. So that you wouldn't have to be mocked and flogged, uh, <laughs> mocked and flogged and crucified. He does this so you can be saved of that. In fact, it's beautifully stated in 1 John, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life and we still see his power because in the book of John, he says why it happens. No one takes it from me. It's not like I was not in power. I was still the king of kings. But here's the thing. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up. Jesus, in his power, uses that for you to serve you in a way unlike any other. And because of this, we are saved. That's phenomenal. Now, there's so much we can learn here. And to talk about this, I, I consider March Madness going on. And um, as a segue, I wanted to bring up a John Wooden quote. John Wooden is a legendary UCLA basketball coach. And about leadership, John Wooden said, A leader's most powerful ally is his or her own example. Leaders don't just talk about doing something, they do it. And when it comes to this, John Wooden was known for going to a locker room and picking up. So if he found a towel, if he found trash, he would pick up this, this legendary coach. And it influenced his players. And so whenever they were in the locker room, as, as he was cleaning up the locker room, they would clean up the locker room. He led by example. Sometimes the janitors would send thank you notes uh, for what he had done and how they had treated the facilities, all by his example. I don't know if you've ever had someone like this, maybe a boss or a coach. They don't just tell you what to do, but they show it. And they're willing to do it themselves. 
remember being in football and uh, a coach without any pads would still lead in the drills. I admired that. I can do it with pads then, right? That's what leaders do. So when Jesus tells us to be servants, something that I love is this, that he did more for us than what he asks of us. He is that coach without pads. He is John Wooden showing the way for his, coach, for his players. He does more than he'll ever ask of us. Back to 1 John 3, it said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life, but look at the response, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so in our struggle, whenever we struggle to serve someone else, we should have in mind the King of Kings picking up a towel and washing the feet of his disciples. Whenever we struggle with the idea of generosity, we should have in mind the Creator God who owns everything, coming and living as a peasant so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. When we struggle with emotional or physical things that have happened to us. We need to see Jesus who forgave a disciple who denied him three times, who while being nailed to the cross says, Father, forgive them. To the soldiers who had abused and traumatized him, he says, Father, forgive them. Because as leader, he will never ask you to do what he hasn't done tenfold. And this, the beauty of Jesus. And so all this is good and true, and we nod our heads, right? The Spirit makes us nod our heads. It's good, Pastor. It's good. I want to serve like Jesus. Yet here comes the mother of James and John. As a sandwich dichotomy like none other. Jesus just said how low we're supposed to go, how low he was going to go. And sandwiched in Scripture is the next account. And the mother approaches and says, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus, you know what I want power for? For me and for my family. Use your power for that, please. You know, talking about family scripts, uh, it seems like this family had boldness. <laughs> um, for example, uh, James and John, of who she speaks of, they were also known as the Sons of Thunder. And that's because they came to a town that did not welcome them. And because the town didn't welcome them, they asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus, can we send down fire to, like, destroy it? What do you think? And you might say, well, Salome here, she's not really great. But this same boldness was used for good. Do you know that in her boldness, she was one standing by the cross as Jesus died? Do you know in her boldness, she was also one of the women who wakes up on Easter morning to go to the tomb? And so what we see is that with any person, there is this mix of good and bad. You ever see that? <laughs> boldness cuts both ways. <laughs> but this is the difference of Jesus and Salome, though. And, and Jesus tries to get across that this is not what the power is for. And so he says, you know what, can you really drink my cup? And then they say, we can. And there's this interesting dialogue. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup. And while they think this is a power and prestige, and they're going to have this position, 
What Jesus is talking about is suffering. It's eerie because when Jesus says this, he is predicting that James will die a martyr's death. And John will be exiled to the island of Patmos. And he predicts that in these words, well, they're just wrapped up with power and prestige. It's incredible how Scripture sandwiches these two things, Jesus going so low and them wanting so high. But are we so different? Are we, 2,000 years later, so much more advanced in the Christian faith? I remember meeting with a, uh, a husband for marital counseling. And the husband comes in and, and is convinced that he is the leader of the household. Pastor, I've read scripture, I'm the leader. And then he shows it to me what the leader, and so, Pastor, you need to tell her that what I say goes. <laughs> and then we pause a little bit. And then we open the Bible to Ephesians. And we open to the part where it says, as a husband and, and, and head, you are to be Jesus who does what? Do you hear what Jesus just did? <laughs> yes, you are called to be the lead servant. Or then just this week, my wife was telling me a preschool story. She was trying to teach the concept of service to one another. And so she said, you know, when two preschoolers, you know, when you come to the same toy, you know what Jesus says to do if you come at it at the same time? You're supposed to say, here you go, you can have it. And then she witnessed the rest of the day. And there was this one occasion where it happened, and two kids came to the same toy. You know what the one kid said? You know what the teacher said? You're supposed to share that with me. And isn't that funny? I mean, it happens all the time. In this sermon, and I don't know if you've ever been in worship, and you're thinking the whole time, it's never hitting home, you're thinking the whole time, someone needs to hear this sermon. <laughs> man, if my wife were here today, man, if my husband were here today, if my kids were here today. Because that's the sinful nature. We continue to struggle. And so what we recognize is we are slow the ways of Jesus. Just as he taught on it, just as he was probably frustrated. So unfortunately, we are not much better innately because of our sinful nature. We struggle just as much. And so when it comes to Jesus and who he is, remember primarily he is Lord and he is Savior. His example is a good one but his performance is better. He was perfect in our place because he had to be. He died our death because there was no other way to be forgiven. And our assurance of salvation will never be our example. It will always be our dependence on Jesus and him alone. But for the rest of our lives, we have an opportunity. An opportunity to give him greater glory by listening to the words he said to avoid the error that is going on in our world. And we recognize what an error it is when power is abused. Jesus spoke of it. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over it, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And, and we are witness of the same kind of power corruption, aren't we? We know examples when someone has power and someone has say, they're not serving. They're demanding what they want and what's good for them. 
And Jesus says, this is wrong. This hurts people. He goes on and he says, not so with you. But in order to really understand this, I have two takeaways that might help us get this way. And the first thing that might help us get this way is that we need to redefine greatness. I don't know if you have been uh, watching our world, but our world praises the wrong things. Our world shines a spotlight on things that maybe a spotlight shouldn't be shined on. When it comes to who we celebrate and who are our role models and, and who we prop forward and propel. And the world has always done this, praising the wrong things. But our God praises different. In, in fact, um, one of the parables that I love is the parable of the rich man and poor Lazarus. And I love the dichotomy there. Because the rich man probably was known. Everyone would have known who he was, what he had, but he was not known by God. Lazarus, on the other hand, was probably an unknown. He was a beggar. Dogs were his best friends. And yet Lazarus was known by God through faith. The dichotomy of the world versus the dichotomy of God. There's another account where a man named Naaman was healed. But it was because of one servant girl. One servant girl. The, the reason that, she was, that he was healed. Look at this account. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. From there, he meets with the prophet and he is cured. But he wouldn't have been if not for that young girl who is a prisoner. When it comes to greatness, we need to redefine. And look at the, the people who are putting others forward, the, the caretakers of life, those who don't need the praise and those who are willing to serve, those who don't need the spotlight. These are the things that God esteems when we're not just after what we want. But before we go, one final point. And what's interesting is that in the three years of teaching his disciples this lesson, he had to keep teaching even in the upper room. On Monday, Thursday, before he would give his life and die, in that room the disciples were still arguing over who was the greatest. They still didn't get it. until Good Friday. Until the disciples came to the cross and they saw the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords do something unimaginable. It seemed like nothing, but it was everything. There the Lord Almighty allowed himself to be king. And as he died, he changed things. On the other side of the cross, you find disciples so humble saying, please don't bow down to me, stand up, I am nothing, he is everything. Don't give the glory here. And I wonder if this was a lesson that needed to be caught rather than taught. Jesus could teach it day in and day out. The greatest is the least, the greatest is the least. But what they needed to see was it proved on the cross. 
You know, it's interesting to me that as Good Friday approaches, there is something, I think, in my sinful nature that doesn't want to go to that day. There's something that says, can we kind of skip past the brutality of that day? Can we kind of move on? But here's what I recognize. I need to see Jesus on the cross. I need to see him suffer, and I need to see him die. And why? So I know how much I've been served. And so when I'm tempted to just be about myself and do it a different way, I recognize his superiority. See, what I learn is this. The teaching is caught when we journey to the cross. And so Good Friday is coming. And every Lent we celebrate. You have a God who serves you to death. And he has saved you. But he has also set for you a better way. May the Holy Spirit help you catch it.